last couple of weeks, we've been talking about influence and authority and victory. We've been talking about gate-level influence. We've been talking about APEST. We've been talking about Ephesians 4. All of these different things. And today I want to take it a step further. What we've recognized is this, is that authority is given to us in the spiritual realm while influence is given to us in the physical realm. Last week we talked about this. Victory is always past your self-doubt. Victory is always past your self-doubt. Today I want to talk about living for more in gate-level leadership. I want to get very practical. I think what we can do sometimes in church, if we're not careful, we can talk on this 5,000-foot level, and, and we can talk about Jesus, and, and we can talk about how we can change the world, and then we never really get practical with it. We never take it to our day-to-day -day life, and that's what I want to do for a few minutes the last couple of weeks, I've mentioned our struggle, our position, and our power. Scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly realms. First and foremost, we have to recognize who we're fighting. We, we have to recognize what we're dealing with. But then we recognize our power. We see our, or excuse me, we recognize our position. Our position is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And then our power is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. The weapons of our warfare are not the weapons of this world. Instead, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Last three or four weeks, we've been connecting these dots that as Christ followers, we're called and we've been given position and power that we may step into authority and influence to advance the kingdom of God. That, that's what we're called to do as Christ followers. We're called to advance the kingdom of God by making disciples of all nations. Last week, I hammered down and challenged us to stop focusing on negative mindsets. Y'all remember the story that I shared about Piper running up the hill? It's the difference between I can't and I'm tough. Some of you in your life, you've had too much negative self-talk. You've told yourself I can't over and over and over again. And you need to start telling yourself that I'm tough. You need to start telling yourself that I can. Can't is not a word that we use in our household. I will correct my daughter about a lot of stuff, but the quickest is when she says I can't. When she says, I can't, it's always a learning moment. Society will tell you that you have to have a title. Culture will tell you that you have to have a position. Social media will tell you that you have to have a platform. And we live as if we have to have a leadership role to make any difference in culture, to make any difference in society, to advance the kingdom. We feel like we have to have the title or the role. What do we do? We devour books. We devour podcasts. Why? Because we want to discover, develop, and deploy our gift set. And we think we can only do that if we're in a position of leadership. We like to ask questions like this. Who can I talk to? Who can I learn from? Who's further along in their, their leadership walk than I am? Not bad questions to ask. I, I would venture to say this. I would venture to say that we've all admired someone, either up close or from afar, that we want to be like. We've all had those leaders that we aspire to learn from, that we aspire to be like. For many of you in the room, that individual might be your dad. I mean, I, I, hope, I hope that my daughters look up to me and want to become something like me, not because of who I am, but because I'm following Jesus. 
We all want to be like someone. The study of leadership really came on the scene in the 20th century. In 1960, a gentleman by the name of Jarrett Hofstede established the basis of the Globe Study. And, and in 1990, Robert House kind of expanded what we now know as the Globe Study. What is the Globe Study? The Globe Study or the Globe Project involves 170 researchers from over 60 different countries who collected data on 17,000 managers from 62 countries around the world. They establish or define leadership as this, the ability of an individual to influence, motivate, and enable others to contribute toward the effectiveness and success of the organizations of which they are members. That's a fancy way and a real smart way of, of coining leadership. All right, I'll put it in layman's terms. I would say leadership is this. Leadership is moving a group of people in a singular direction for a cause greater than themselves. That, that's leadership. In research, they began to ask questions like, what, what are traits that make up a good leader? What are traits that make up a bad leader? Some of the traits, they'll put them on the screen, some of the traits that, that, that we came up with for, for good leadership is, is trustworthy, intelligent, honest, they plan ahead. By the way, if you're a leader in the room, your lack of preparation shouldn't be someone else's emergency. Just because you have a title doesn't mean you get to cast all of your stuff or junk you forgot about on somebody else. They're positive, they're dynamic, they're a motivator, they're a confidence builder. Dependable, just, decisive, and the list goes on. And then we have some negative traits. Negative traits of leaders are they're loners, they're antisocial, they're, they're not cooperative, they're egocentric, they're, they're ruthless. And the list goes on and on. But all of this is based on the leader. And on specific leadership styles. I'm a firm believer that leadership is warranted, but I would venture to say that it's just the tip of the iceberg. John Maxwell says this. He says, if you think you're leading but no one is following you, you're only out taking a walk. I, lo I love that quote. Merle Crowell says this. It's the man behind who makes the men ahead. Reverend Paul Beadle says this. Followership is a discipline of supporting leaders and helping them to lead well. It's not submission, but the wise and good care of leaders done out of a sense of gratitude for their willingness to take on the responsibility of leadership and a sense of hope and faith in their abilities and potential. Uh, many of you know this, some of you might not, but during my PhD work, I, I studied leadership. So my PhD is in organizational leadership. And so I studied leadership for years and years and years, and then I started studying followership. But what does it look like for someone to actually follow? Again, society is ran rampant with leadership, leadership books, leadership podcasts, leadership abilities, and we, we focus on the leader, but, but I started taking a look at followership, and I asked some of these questions. How do followers impact the kingdom of God? What does a good second chair leader look like? What are some of their tendencies? Why do some leaders shy away from having second chair leaders? Why do some churches and organizations even value the position of a number two? Mike Bonham and, and Roger Patterson, they wrote a book called Leading from the Second Chair, and they said this, a second chair leader is a person in a subordinate role whose influence with others adds value throughout the organization. 
What I found was this. Good organizations identify top-tier leaders, while great organizations and churches identify top-tier leaders and second-chair leaders. Here's the interesting thing. We're all truly second-chair leaders. I I don't care what your title is in your day-to-day job. I don't care if you have the title of CEO or not. We're all second-chair leaders. Why? Well, let me break it down from a practical standpoint. Some of us have bosses. Coach, I'm just going to use you as an example, right? I wasn't planning on doing this, but I'm going to use it. You, you, have, you have a boss. His name is Scott Abel. He's the head coach. You're, you're a second-chair leader. But what you do matters by furthering the football team along. There's many of you in the room that, that you have a position within your organization to further the organization, but you're still in second chair leadership. Even if you're the CEO in the room, I would submit to you that you're still a second chair leader. Why? Because you don't do anything if your consumers aren't buying your product. You're you're still a second chair leader. Now this is what we know as Christ followers. We're all called to be second to Jesus. We're all called to be second chair leaders. What does that look like in the dynamics of the church? There's a company called I Am Second, and it's this whole idea that we're all second to Jesus. And this is one of their statements. Pop culture celebrates making your mark in this me-first world. We manufacture our images, manage our personal brands, and adopt identities defined by the desperate desire to influence what everyone thinks we are and what we think we should be. It's our fatal flaw. I Am Second is a declaration of a new identity. A radical mantra of those weary and tired of being left wanting by empty promises, a state of heart and mind where we invite real love, Jesus, to fill the empty and aching space in our soul and we tell our stories that others might experience that too. What does it mean for us to tell our story that we are truly second? To have gate-level leadership that regardless of where you find yourself in your day-to-day, God has called you to expand the kingdom by your leadership potential. Look at some of the the global companies that, that we all know. Berkshire Hathaway, the number one person in charge. Warren Buffett, who's the number two? Y'all don't know. Charles Munger. Nike, number one. Mark Parker, who's the number two? You don't know. Name's Trevor Edwards. He's been there for 24 years. Apple, number one is Tim Cook. The number two is Jeff Williams. Amazon, who's the number one? Bezos. All right, Bezos. Who's the number two? Andy Jassy. He's been there for 20 years. By the way, I didn't know any of this. I Googled it, all right? So don't think I'm that smart. Tesla, who's the number one? Everybody knows that one, right? Elon Musk, who's the number two? Nope. J.B. Struble. He's been there for 13 years. But this isn't anything new. I mean, we see this in leadership. We see the importance of a number two in leadership uh, in organizations, but we also see it in Scripture. Take a look at 1 Kings chapter 19. It's the story of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah's walking along, and he sees this dude out in the field plowing. It's Elisha, and, and he's got his ox hooked up. He's got his yoke hooked up. And Elijah walks over to Elisha, takes his cloak off, throws it around him, and says, Hey, it's time for you to follow me. It's time for you to be my second chair leader. What about Jonathan and his armor bearer? I've talked about this before. 1 Samuel chapter 14, starting in verse 6. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let us go to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Verse 7. 
Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I'm with you, heart and soul. Think of Jesus and his disciples. Jesus even needed people around him to establish the kingdom of God on earth. Scripture shows us the importance of having a second chair leader. Organizations show us the importance of having second chair leadership. We can talk about gate level authority. We can talk about gate level influence. We can talk about gate level victory. We can, we can go back and, and revisit the last three weeks of sermons. But none of this matters if we don't get practical. None of this matters if, if we don't know how to, how to influence our culture, how to influence our society, and how to influence our workplace. I think there's two groups that are in the room. And the first group in the room, I would say that you're a, a top-tier leader in your organization. And the second group in the room, you find yourself more in a followership role. Let, let me be clear. Your position or title doesn't give you worth or value. Only God gives you worth and value. But we honor God by how we utilize our gifts regardless of our position or title. So let's talk to the first group for just a second. Man, you lead a department, you, you lead a company, you might lead a sales division, or you lead a region. And, and the million-dollar question that you have to ask is how do you truly discover, develop, and deploy good second-chair leaders? This is how you discover them. I think there's three high qualities, and we'll find this in Scripture. There's three high qualities of second-chair leaders. The first one is this. They do the, the ordinary unordinarily well. Good second chair leaders do the ordinary unordinarily well. You, you know who that is in the church. It's the individuals who show up at 6, 6.30 in the morning and put the pipe and drape up. It's the individuals in the morning who show up and, and they're putting up the signs at all the streets so people know where Multiply Church is. It's the individuals that roll the carpet out. It's the individuals that set the chairs up. They do the ordinary unordinarily well. Who else is it? This is another quality. This is this. They don't just set the standards. They exemplify the standards. We've all seen this. We've all seen that person that says, hey, we need to do it like this. And they don't do it like that. We need to follow Jesus like this. And they're not doing anything that they've said. Another quality of a good second chair leader, number three, is this. You can trust your name in their mouth. I can't tell you how important that is. And all the leaders in the room, I see you like nodding your heads. When you can trust your name in someone else's mouth, you know that you're establishing a strong team. And then you have to develop them. How do you develop people? You have to give them opportunity. You give them opportunity by delegating. By the way, delegation isn't giving away the parts of your job that you don't like to do. Let me say that again. Delegation isn't giving away the things that you don't like or want to do. Delegation is giving individuals an opportunity to step in their, to their divine design and calling. That's what true delegation is. Then you have to give them a voice. My buddy Mike Santiago says it this way. Leaders aren't discovered. They're developed. And then you have to deploy them. Now this is where we get into scripture. 1 Samuel chapter 14 starting in verse 11. So both of them, Jonathan and his armor bearer, showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes that they were hiding in. And the men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come, come up and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord 
has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and his feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Listen, the leaders in the room, you have a job to do. Jonathan was the leader. He had a job to do. What did he do? He struck down the Philistines. But that second chair leader, the person following, also had a job to do. The armor bearer had to kill the Philistines. I never comprehended this when I was reading the scripture. I always thought Jonathan was just the dude. But Jonathan wasn't. He knocked him down and the armor bearer killed behind him. If you have the right second chair leader, you don't have to micromanage your team. If you're a leader in the room and you constantly worry about how your team is doing... If you're a leader in the room and you're constantly having to make every decision, you have to be in every meeting, you have to approve everything, I would suggest this. You're not leading, you're actually dictating. If you have to make every single decision and be in every single meeting, you're not leading. You're dictating. God didn't call you to dictate. He called you to lead. You're not leading, you're dictating. High-level leaders discover, develop, and deploy second-chair leaders. If you're a leader in the room, let me talk about some pitfalls to avoid. The first one is this. Don't let bad experiences reflect on someone else. I, I can't tell you how many times I've been, I mean, I've been burned in ministry. The last five years, not by anyone in this room, they've all left. Praise God. Oh, we're recording. I don't know if I should say stuff like that. But seriously, like I've been, I've been burned. I mean, you, you've been in your workplace and, and you've been burned. I'm sure Jonathan and his leadership capabilities had been burned throughout Scripture. But what does he do with his armor bearer? He says, hey, hey, follow me. Let's go take care of business. Some of you in the room, you feel like you've been burned by the church. And, and some of you haven't stepped in church in a while. And you say things like, well, I can't, I can't go to church because if I go to church, that's just going to bring up past pain, past hurt. I hear, I hear this all the time. <laughs> I, hear, I hear it said, well, if I, walk, if I walk into the church, that place is going to catch on fire. That's fine. We got a fire extinguisher. Like, you're not as bad as you think you are. You're not as tough as you think you are. You can't outrun the grace of God. You're still called to follow Jesus. Let me switch gears for just a second, let's talk to the potential, potential second chair leaders in the room. And again, this is what I would suggest, regardless of your title, regardless of what you find yourself doing day to day, we're all in a second chair role. We're all second to Jesus. Here's a few principles that you're called to follow as a second chair leader. The first one is this. This is actually in our staff playbook. We say this to all, in all of our staff meetings. This is a principle of ours at this church. But you have to be in heart and soul. You have to be in heart and soul. First Samuel chapter 14, starting in verse 6, Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving us, whether by many or by few. And I, I love verse 7. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead. I'm with you, heart and so, listen, I remember being in the Marine Corps. 
And, and as a Marine, like, we always talk about boot camp. We always talk about training. We always talk about combat or battle. And, and we get in this mindset, and, and we talk as if we're tough because we are. But this is what I know. The most important tool that I have access to as a Marine isn't, isn't boot camp. It's not my weapon. It's not my communication system. It's not even my own ability. It's the trust that I have in the Marine right beside me. That's what truly matters. It's the trust between you and the person next to you. We can talk about being a church that wants to expand the kingdom of God and to take Lake Norman for his kingdom, but this is what I have to ask. If you look to the person to your right and to your left, do you truly trust them? Some of you can't give me a definitive answer because you don't even know the name of the person sitting, sitting next to you. In fact, you've sat beside them for so long, it's almost awkward if you ask them their name now. Everybody's laughing because you're like, you got me. <laughs> Y'all want to know a secret? I always go to Megan and Brittany. I'm like, hey, what's their name? Because I forgot. <laughs> but do you truly trust the person to your right and to your left? Listen, we, we cannot do this thing alone. We were never meant to do this thing alone. We were always called to be second to Jesus, to link arms together and expand the kingdom of God. But we can't expand the kingdom of God if we don't trust the people to our right and to our left. Jonathan trusted his armor bearer. What type of trust do you have with the people beside you? Are you in heart and soul? Being in heart and soul means being committed where you are and to not being a consumer. A few months back, we talked about this concept between being a consumer and being a multiplier. You wanna, I'll break down what a church consumer is. This is a church consumer. A church consumer is an individual that goes to church A because they like their worship. They go to church B because they like their small groups. They go to church, church C because they like their youth group. And they, like, they go to church D because they like the way the pastor preaches. Th that's being a consumer. That's being a spiritual glutton. And what you're doing is you're bouncing around to church, to church, to church. And that's not what God has called us to do. God has called us to get involved in a community, in a family. Not just to go wide, but to go deep. I don't care where you go to church, but go somewhere and get plugged in. Don't just church hop week in and week out. Find somewhere where you can get plugged in and get rooted and expand the kingdom of God. Why? Because when you get plugged in and get rooted, you can trust the people to your right and left. You can actually learn their name and their story. The second principle is this. You have to put your hands to work. Picking back up in 1 Samuel. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and his feet with his armor bearer right behind him. And the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed, and Jonathan's armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In the first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in the area of about half an acre. At this church, we say it this way, don't talk about it, be about it. Zach, you've said some of this before. Yeah, I got to say it again so it sticks in your head. Don't talk about it, be about it. We say things like, I don't know if I'm, I just don't know if I'm ready. I don't know if I'm ready to serve in the church. I don't know if I'm ready to plug in. I don't know if I'm willing and ready to be a part of it. Here's the deal. You'll never be fully ready. It's kind of like having a kid. You're never ready. Jenna's trying to convince me to have a third kid. Ain't happening. Not ready. <laughs> Good Lord, please, no. Let me keep going. Let me get back to my, let me just read my notes before I start talking about that. You'll never be fully ready. You'll never feel like you have what you need. Let me talk to some of my flaws for a second. 
Had a stuttering problem as a kid. I've told you this before. I literally had to go to speech classes. I stuttered like crazy. I would get going so fast that I couldn't articulate sentences. That was a pretty good sentence that I just articulated. <laughs> before I planted the church, I'd never pastored full time. I was 27 years old, never planted a church. I don't know what that meant. But I did it anyway. I didn't have the pedigree, but think back to the armor bear. Verse 13, Jonathan climbed up using his hand and his feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer followed behind and killed them. That, that's a noble idea. It's a noble con. That's cool. Like his, his armor bearer had his back. Like everybody wants somebody that has their back. But to truly understand what's going on in this story, we have to go back to chapter 13. Let me read 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 19 and 22. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said otherwise the Hebrews would make swords and spears. Verse 22. So on the day of battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hands. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. We connect some dots for you. If we're not careful, we'll look at what we don't have. We'll look at what type of weapons we don't have. And you might say, I don't have the skill set. I don't have the pedigree. I don't have. You might not have it. But here's the deal. The armor bearer didn't have it either. The dude didn't even have a weapon. And he's following behind Jonathan, killing the Philistines. And then we'll say things like, oh, I'm not ready. I don't have the pedigree. I don't, I don't know if I can do what God's calling me to do. You might not have it in your hand, but if you have some perhaps faith and be about it mentality, you can accomplish everything that God is calling you to do. I think one of the major problems in the local church when it comes to leading people is that we've just gotten soft. I said it last week. I'll say it again this week. We as a church, not just our church, but the global church, we have to get some grit. We have to get some dog in us. We have to get some fight in us where we actually stop being soft and start proclaiming the gospel Message. I'm going to skip down to a couple things. Read these off quickly. Number three is this. You have to be comfortable in who you are. Let me ask you, what was the armor bearer's name? Go back through scripture. What was the armor bearer's name? We have no idea. Can you serve? Can you be a second chair leader without being in the limelight? Without always getting the recognition number four we have to always honor first we honor our leaders and and then we honor those we serve with listen we would not be the church that we are without someone like pastor doug who's our senior pastor of the multiply network pouring into this church pouring into our leaders pouring into me we would not be where we are without someone like that we have to honor our leaders but then i have to honor the individuals that serve with us i have to honor every single multiplier that's at this church. I have to honor our team. I have to honor media. I have to honor the worship. I have to honor everyone we have to honor. Number five, we maximize major opportunities. Second Timothy chapter four, verse two says this, preach the word and be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. I think our, our culture and our society, and I would say um, some people who are they're probably Christian, but they're getting into heaven by the skin of their teeth. They're really good at correcting and rebuking. As a church, we've gotten really good at correcting and rebuking. We're not great at encouraging. 
What does it look like to correct, rebuke, and encourage with what? With great patience and careful instruction. That doesn't mean popping off on Facebook just because somebody ticked you off. Right? Come on. With great patience and careful instruction. Number six, don't back down from the right decision. Sometimes a major decision-making opportunity comes our way and we're tempted to run. And we'll say things like, that's not my decision. That's above my pay grade. It might not be your final decision, but God is calling you to use your responsibility and your influence and your wisdom to guide the conversation. We can't be yes men or yes women. If you're convicted about something, then you have to say something. Many of you are walking into your workplace day in and day out, and you're so convicted about a principle that the business stands for, and you feel like God is calling you to say something, but for some reason, you don't have the courage and conviction to open your mouth. What would it look like if God entrusted you to change the culture of your area, to change the culture of your business, to change the culture of your workplace? I think a lot of times we do it, God, would you just help me to, or would you just change the mind? And God's going, I will change the mind if you start opening your mouth. What would it look like for us to open our mouths? Number seven is this, don't just survive, but thrive. See, some people thrive in second chair leadership while others just survive. Many of you, and, me, and I've been there before, I just want to survive in the workplace I remember working not in the church world, but working kind of in, in the secular world. And, and it was like I would go to work, and, and all I wanted to do was just survive the day. There was, there was one job that I had. It was when we first moved to North Carolina before we planted the church. We were living in Hickory. We were staying. Uh, actually, we were staying at your house. Jenna's grandmother's here today. Y'all give it up for her. Give you a shout out. Just because you let us stay in your house for so long. We were like down in the basement. But I was driving from Hickory to Ballantyne, about an hour and 45 minutes. Here, here's the kicker. The kicker was the organization that I worked for, uh, I worked with international clients, so I had to be there at odd hours uh, because I had to be at work when other people were at work across the world. So I would leave the house between 3 and 3.30 in the morning just to get to work on time. I, I remember those days and I promise you I was just trying to survive. I was just trying, I wasn't trying to thrive. I was just trying to survive. But the essential attitudes for thriving as second chair leaders is submission, service, thankfulness, and passion. You can get by with submission, service, and thankfulness. We'll, we'll submit to our leaders. Yeah, we'll follow the organization. We'll be thankful that we have the opportunity and, and we'll, we'll serve. But the thing that separates us and the thing that should separate us as Christ followers is passion. We're called to have passion everywhere we go. But the linchpin to all of this, whether you're the leader or whether you're the follower, the linchpin to all of it is pride. Proverbs chapter 16 tells us that pride comes before the fall. As a first chair, chair leader, it's prideful to think that you can do it on your own. It's prideful to think that you're good enough. As a second chair leader, pride will tell you that you should be further along by now. Pride will tell you that you should have the title. Pride will tell you that, that you should have a voice. Pride will tell you that, that you should be where your leader is. Pride will tell you that you're better than the leader in front of you. Pride is always the downfall. 
Listen, if you haven't heard anything that I've said this morning, hear this. You're never as good as you think you are in your best moment, and you're never as bad as people say you are in your worst moment. We're all second chair leaders following Jesus. I don't care if you're a stay-at-home parent. I don't care if you're a CEO. All of this can be implemented in your workplace, in the church place, in your community involvement. For just a moment, we're going to step back step back into worship because we truly do want Jesus we want all that Jesus has for us but the challenge is this sometimes what Jesus has for you is you being a leader in the community you being a leader in your workplace as we step back into worship here's the question would you be so bold to ask God what he's calling you to do in your specific area of influence Hey, thanks for joining us today at Multiply Church. We can't wait to see you again next week, either in person or online, as we continue to love Jesus and change the world.